Greetings, everyone. Welcome to this week's Red Voices. Thank you for stopping by during these uh, trying times. You and I'm Rich here to analyse an enjoyable, if slightly redundant, Europa League tie with Lask. Ponder what the future holds for football at large due to the COVID-19 outbreak. And we've got some exciting news about what you can expect from the podcast over the next few months, with the football industry grinding to a complete stop. Great fun. Richard, how are we? Hi, I'm not too bad. Not too bad in the circumstances, anyway. Excellent. Are you and yours okay at the moment we are we are currently okay but uh with with kids going to school and and people going to work i'm not sure how long that'll be the case but no no i mean side note i know you've been discussing this with a couple of our friends on twitter in terms of the the country's uh the government's response over in the uk to what's been going on starting to feel like a very risky approach to the situation isn't it Mm, yeah it is I, i think one of the biggest problems they've had is communication i think it's been so poor um and they've they they flip flop between between approaches or, or supposed approaches. So you know we had two days of being told that the ultimate goal was this herd immunity nonsense, and then two days later they're absolutely denying that was ever really the case. And we're not, just not really being told what's going on. And you can you can understand people looking at pretty much every other Western country in the world closing everything down, and we're still all all going to Tesco's and going to restaurants and and whatever else, you know. Tesco's yesterday it was literally packed in like sardines with people buying huge trolleys of stuff and it's just I I just I can't comprehend how this could be a a sensible strategy to to prevent the spread of a what is for many people a a deadly disease Mm, I mean we went shopping on a uh, on Saturday with my parents and uh, just for a a food shop it wasn't a massive supply run it was more of an essentials run but yeah um it did not help my anxiety, put it that way. It was particularly tense. And as you can imagine, pasta shelves completely empty, no hand sanitizer, barely any soap. You know, not you're not we're not even talking hand soap, we're talking just bars of soap. There was basically none of that. No toilet roll whatsoever, which is still a rather incredible thing to me because I'm pretty sure that COVID nineteen doesn't actually make you shit yourself. No. But anyway, uh it an unprecedented situation for sure and you know I, I guess that that's partly why it's actually quite nice to be coming to the podcast despite the fact that we've spent the first two minutes of this podcast talking about that massive pandemic that's sweeping mm. the globe so I, I you know going back to what you were talking about there obviously there was some context to that lask game or last game i mean can i can we switch between both because i'm still not sure what i should be saying here oh i don't know I, I've, I've been calling him lask but i don't think anybody yeah. outside of austria knows do they that's true now, I and mean, that's fine. You know, it, it was interesting coming into that game, obviously, because a couple of the Europa League last 16 times ties have been cancelled or at least postponed. You know, Inter's tie against Getafe had been called off. Uh, it was looking like Real Madrid had gone into self-isolation. So this game against City, which was supposed to be in the coming days, would have been completely chalked off the calendar. So it was an interesting time to be preparing for this game, looking at what United could potentially face then hearing that it was going to go behind closed doors and then thinking it's going to be a minor miracle if we're actually able to finish off this time the next week, especially with how quickly, you know, European football federations were shutting down all activity. Mm. Uh, you know, side note, it was incredible that the Premier League up until, uh, what was it, like 10 o'clock on Thursday night, was still saying, yes, this weekend's games will go ahead. 10 minutes after that, you hear Mikel Arteta's contracted coronavirus. And then half an hour later, you're thinking maybe the games will be off this weekend. <laughs> It's it's just so reactive, isn't it? It's mm. you know you, one of the things that concerned me when we were li- watched um, the Boris Johnson and the uh, two medical experts press conference the other day was he was basically saying you know if you go to a football match in the outdoors you're probably only going to in- infect three people because of the distance between people and and whatever else and on the one hand on, from one perspective 
you don't really want to be infecting anybody. But from the other perspective, it gave me the impression they didn't have any concept of the way that people pack themselves into the concourses in like sardines and queue up within inches of each other for the food and drink and, and all bundle into a really small space in the toilets. And it just seemed it just seemed nuts. And I think the, 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 the epitome of the, the craziness was the was the Champions League game on Wednesday night, wasn't it? With 3,000 Lithgo Madrid fans getting into Liverpool from a city that was a virus hotspot. And yeah. in a country where they weren't actually allowed to travel, in a part of the, Spain where they weren't actually allowed to travel freely or leave to go to other parts of Spain, unless they had a significant reason, but they could fly into Liverpool, spend a day or whatever, spreading around the city, and then all pack into a stadium together with lots of with sixty thousand people. Um, yeah, that was a fascinating second leg. Yeah, it was. It was a good game. It was yeah. a good game. It was a good way to go out in terms of actual football with the crowd. Not forever, um, of course, for the moment. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if the last Champions League game we see in our lifetime is Liverpool getting knocked out of the Champions League, then, you know, I guess that's all right. <laughs> it could be worse. Gosh. Anyway, jetting over to Austria, no crowd as opposed to, uh, sorry, apart from one fan who managed to squeeze into the press box and was doing United chants so loud you could hear him down the commentary. Uh, was it Ian Darker and uh, Robbie Savage who were commenting on the game from London? Mm. So BT clearly thought it was probably a better idea not to send anyone over. And mm. apparently United's uh, provisions for the virus have been to test everyone before the game at half time than after the game. So it's clear they're taking it quite seriously. But with all that context... It was a really fascinating game in some ways, wasn't it? You know, it was incredible to be able to hear uh, Harry Maguire and Sergio Romero talking to each other and Maguire shouting at Romero saying, where do you want me to go when they were lining up that wall? Mm. And all characterised by that stunning first half strike by a rather interesting player over the last couple of months, Richard. I think it's an incredible situation for Agallo to have come into the side with basically zero expectation apart from easing the burden on Anthony Martial and Mason Greenwood to have had such a good effect on the team. You know, it sounds for all intents and purposes that he's uh, fitted in quite well in terms of his personality. He scored some useful goals and that his fourth goal for the club, opening the goals up against Lask, was an absolute beauty, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. I mean, I was one of the people who I, I, mean, I didn't imagine that he would settle anywhere near us as well as he has but I didn't I also didn't think it was a completely ridiculous idea to to sign him in the first place in the way that a lot of people seem to because you know we're talking about a guy who four or five years ago when he was at Watford you know United were actually quite strongly linked with with buying him they were yeah 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 so I mean I think it was and in a way it was a surprise that he actually went to um, China but what you tend to what what you often see or the the pattern seems to be that that a lot of the players from Africa and, and South America in particular are more inclined, I think, to move to sort of lesser footballing leagues for a lot of money because, I, I, I suspect, because of the kind of poverty they grew up in and because of the difference they can make to their families' lives and to the lives of their communities that they grew up in. And so Absolutely, yeah. it was it was almost a, it was a move he, he seemed to make that didn't really fit his profile at the time, but one with obvious... And I've, I've seen since that he, he has undertaken an awful lot of projects in his old town and region so the fact that he was playing in China wasn't necessarily an indicator that he was he was useless because you know the last evidence we have had of him in the in the Premier League was that he was a, a you know kind of one in two match goal scorer for Watford and a pretty decent player but I think we've all been very pleasantly surprised by the the speed with which he's integrated and I mean as a person as well I mean it's like it's, it's nice as a fan to see a guy who is so clearly 
United mad actually moving to the club and, and, and they can actually, you could actually see them really, their absolute joy at, of being at the club they've supported since they were a kid. And in, in that respect, it's been a really, really wonderful experience to see him come in and actually score goals. But this, I suppose the flip side of that is that how cruel it's kind of been that, that he's he's fitted in so well. And then he's he's had that opportunity at the very least postponed and, and potentially taken away from him. Solskjaer essentially intimated uh, in the post-match interviews that... United were certainly interested in seeing if they could make the deal permanent. And I think it was uh, Steve Bates over in the mirror who uh, suggested that it would cost £15 million and Agala would take a significant pay cut in order to sign for United. And I've got to admit, I mean, there is an element of... You know, obviously, we've only had him playing for, what, six weeks or so because it was sealed right at the end of the January transfer window. So it's difficult to suggest that we've got a massive sample size of, of games of which to work with. But in those six weeks, he's had a very useful effect for United beyond just giving the other strikers and forwards time to breathe and know they don't have to play every game. You know, as as mentioned, personality-wise and personally, he seems to have fitted in very well. And you could see the difference in his performances over that period as well. And when he obviously arrived at the club, he had no pre-season, so he was essentially training and getting back up to speed in the gym on his own. And then dropped into a couple of Premier League games relatively early on in his experience just to try and see what he could do. And it was a good couple of weeks until he actually started a game of any significance. And I think, in a way, it shows just how good we have actually, or much more efficient we have been at the very least, in terms of our actual attacking play that's shown how, that points to how well he's fitted in. And I think, obviously, you give a lot of credit to Bruno for that in the sense that he's really made our attack and our pressing and our ability to create chances so much more profound. We're so much better at creating goal-scoring opportunities than we were a couple of months ago, due in large part to Bruno Fernandes' presence. And I think Igalo has certainly benefited from that. But regardless, you know, you, you, you've got to give him all the credit for that goal. A wonderful touch between his several feet and... Sorry, between his several feet? Wonderful touch. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> excellent. <laughs> great bit of juggling between his left and his right foot. And the way he lashed that in off... I mean, it, it, it's great to be able to hear the noise, especially that's one of the benefits of the fact there, was no fan, there were no fans in the stands. You could hear it graze off the bar, couldn't you? It was a great finish. And honestly, if... If I was given a decision of whether or not uh, to sign a Galo, I'd be very tempted to make that deal permanent. Not just because it seems like he's been able to integrate well with United now. Not just because at the moment this is still a work in progress United signing. He's having a profound effect on our ability to score goals. You know, four in three starts. I think it's also the fact that you could imagine that that wouldn't eat too much into our potential budget for the summer. You know, I mm. think. Buying him would leave United quite a lot of money. Well, maybe not a lot of money, but it would give us more money to focus on other areas of the pitch that maybe need a little bit more depth and strengthening, you know? Yeah, I mean, it does seem to be that we're, again, pursuing a deal for, or we were pursuing a deal for Jaden Sancho before this happened and everything's up in the air. But And that's that's a deal that you can absolutely make sense of in terms of both the signing and the outlay for it. But if you assume that he's going to cost upwards of probably 100 million euros possibly more that leaves you with a relatively limited budget to um, strengthen other areas and it does seem that Solskjaer is is happy with Anthony Martial as, as a striker as a centre forward and he's certainly scoring goals so I mean we can't really really complain too much and I got the impression that we were happy to we wanted to take Haaland obviously because of his talent but also because of the fact that he was so cheap I mean he was 20 million euros which is absolutely a bargain for a, a player of his potential 
I'm not convinced that we've been willing to spend three or four times that amount on a, on a centre forward when we when we've already got Martial who who Solskjaer seems relatively happy with. So it makes a lot of sense to me that we would prioritise perhaps the signing of Sancho and then maybe a, a, another and a midfielder particularly, which would both cost quite a lot of money, and then perhaps try and pick up um, some cheap options in other areas if we feel we need strength. And I think one of the things United haven't done particularly well in the last few years, and there are many things on that list, mm-hmm. but um, I think one of them is 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 purchasing quite sort of sub thirty million pound signings sort of good value um, signings. We, we've we've been a bit obvious a lot of the time. Um, and you could say we did again to a degree last summer with Wan-Bissaka and Maguire um, particularly. I mean, if you look at those two guys, I mean, we could, we could both, we've both seen them in the, Premier, in the Premier League, so we knew what we were getting. But to get that kind of profile player that, from, that has already has experience in the Premier League, you're going to spend a lot of money. So we need to work a little bit outside the box. And I think what we've seen with Igalo is that even if he's ultimately not of the quality we need for a Manchester United starter in the team that's going to challenge at the top of the league, he's offered us something completely different to what we had before. And you could see the difference when he came on in the City game, that United immediately started holding the ball up incredibly well and, and keeping the ball higher up the pitch and, and countering more effectively. And he's 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 given us something completely different to what Martial offers. And for the sake of... 10 or 15 million quid to get you a different kind of striker in one you know will score you goals at the very least in in cup competitions um, and take the take the burden off um, whoever your first choice if United are looking at getting looking for a, a good value centre forward who offers something completely different to to what we get it we have in Martial who can actually have an impact at, least, at the very least in the cup games then it makes a lot of sense to do that and and spend the big money on on other areas where we're we're very light and very lacking in the sort of quality we need. Mm, absolutely, yeah. And I think you could say, I mean, obviously we're talking um, in mad hypotheticals at the minute because who knows what we're going to see happening over the next twelve months when it comes to football. Perhaps there's an element of us being slightly reactionary and saying, "Oh gosh, we'd love a Galo, to, or maybe we'd like a Galo to sign, or maybe we'd be happy with a Galo to sign, considering that he's only been playing for us six months. Who knows what the future holds?" But based on what we've seen so far, that would be a it. it the loan signing, at least, has turned into a very shrewd piece of business from United in an era where we haven't seen many examples of that. So I certainly wouldn't be against us making that deal permanent. And I think one of the interesting aspects of it is that you know people were sort of decreeing his quality and you know deriding the level of business and player and profile of player that United were going for at the end of the January transfer window. Not hearing a lot of that now. And I think there's an element no. of uh, Igalo playing perhaps above his level to an extent considering that he is playing for his boyhood club you know this is the team that he supported you know he's made several interviews and highlighted the fact that this is what he used to do at the weekend he would pay to watch United play in Nigeria and it's you know there is a certain romanticism about it that I really am attached to and I really like the man himself and I do think that there is an element of him upping his game to a hitherto unforeseen level to play it in this quality because he is playing for United and there's such an emotional attachment to it. And long may it last. Um, speaking yep. of players who scored goals as well, because there were several others who did so on Thursday night, Dan James was a lad who certainly needed a goal and came close to doing it in the first half and actually finally managed it in the second with a somewhat fortuitous touch that took it beyond the goalkeeper. Um, a useful goal for him, all told, you know, considering he hadn't scored since, what, September, was it? 
32 games apparently 32 starts anyway I think you could you could see in his face couldn't you but after it went in he was he had that kind of angry face rather than the elated face didn't he it was one mm. of kind of release of release of tension and frustration yeah because um, he's been playing with tension for quite some time hasn't he yeah, it has, and it's, it's it's been a season that's been. I think it's been really unfair on Dan James that that he came in and really should have just been playing a, a squad role, being able to take him in and out of the team, you know, just to to kind of ease him in and let him develop as a player. And instead, what's happened is we've had to we've had to use him for a long periods of the season as a as a first choice footballer, and I think it's it's really impacted on his confidence. And I think. As a as a footballer, as a winger at the moment, he's still quite one dimensional. I saw a stat the other day so, saying that he'd failed to complete the most dribbles of any player in the Premier League, and you can see why because he's very predictable in 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 the way he plays. A lot of it relies on his speed. A lot of it relies on his right foot, and I think a lot of defenders have, have kind of worked him out. And that that's not to say that he can't develop because I think he absolutely can he's 22 years old and he can he can improve and change as a player and become a lot more effective at this level but 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 the impact of being thrown in and and repeatedly played regardless has has clearly taken a toll on him mentally as well as as you could see from from his celebration so I mean from his perspective it was very nice for him to to get a goal in the last game that we might see for for months <laughs> um so that at least he goes away you know, he goes into that break with with that the idea that he had some form in mind, and he scored a goal, and that it doesn't kind of weigh on him in the intervening period. But I think, mm. as, I think as you said, he was a little bit lucky with the with the touch that he took before the hit because it was slightly heavy, but the he just managed to snap the shot off before the defender got there, and ultimately it was a, it was a really decent finish. Yeah, it was similar to his goal against Chelsea, wasn't it, when he was getting uh, yeah. his first strike pass, uh, Kepper. And I think it, just because that touch took it away from him in terms of where he naturally wanted to go, so he snatched at it pretty quickly. And I think it's that movement that's taken it beyond the keeper and given him no time to react. And yeah, I mean, I guess the third goal, lovely piece of defence splitting from Fred. Great pass for Juan Mata and very carefully stroked in. And again, you know, the, the combination of Mata and Fernandez was bearing a lot of fruit in that game. And Mason Greenwood coming on for number four, I mean... Speaking of which, actually, the provider of that fourth goal to Heath Chong, new deal for him. Uh, that's pretty. Mm. I, I mean, he's gotten a lot of flack and a lot of criticism from United fans who haven't necessarily seen much of anything from him in the or you know, purportedly much of anything from the appearances that he's made over this year. And I think we've spoken about Chong quite a bit on this show, haven't we, Rich? In terms of the fact that yeah. there's an element that he's not quite ready for this level of football. But I'd still say given the interest that he was generating from other clubs, I'm pleased to see him sign a new deal. And I think, you know, given more experience at this level, he will turn into something, if not exceptional, something pretty useful for United. Yeah, I mean, he's been very, very good for the uh, for the academy teams um, since he signed from, from um, Feyenoord. Um, and some players like Greenwood, like Williams, are just able to make that, that leap without any real thought, without actually having to overcome a psychological or physical hurdle to actually move step take a step up in level, and I think Chong's one of the ones that probably needs to be nurtured more slowly and built up more slowly. He's the kind of ideal candidate for a season or two of loans in which he, much as Mason Mount did, really the same sort of thing. You know, Mount had a season at Vitesse in Holland and then a season of the Championship, which really prepared him well for the the step up to the Premier League. And mm. I mean, it's in, I'll be very interested to see what the plan is that United have agreed with Chong going forward. I think there was a suggestion. Um, I think um, 
Fabrizio Romano was saying that he'd, he'd, he'd step back from signing for Inter because Inter wanted to loan him out. Mm. The, the suggestion from that is that he perhaps has been promised that he can he can stick around and and continue with uh, to develop at United. I don't know whether that's the best thing for him or not. I... Well, it's a, it's a risk, isn't it, to an extent? Because yeah. who knows what competitions United are going to be in next season? You know, if it's Champions mm. League, then I wouldn't necessarily expect him to get a lot of games, at least out of the Premier League ones, anyway. No, it's 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 interesting that he's actually only signed a two year extension as opposed to a sort of sort of four or five year contract. And it, it, I think it clearly is a case of both he and the club have made it long enough to give some some degree of security but they've left it short enough that if either of them decides that it's not working out for them they they can they can move him on in a year's time so yeah i mean he's an interesting one i mean i think he's at a similar stage to angel gomez as well in that they're clearly very talented players but the question is just can they and how can they take that that step up to the very highest level and it, you know both i think both are at relative turning points in their in their careers, and, and it'd just be interesting to see how how that goes because we, because particularly looking at Chong, you know Chong's an old school winger really, and mm. you don't you don't see too many really kind of classic old school wingers. And, and when we start with our best team, we we usually start with Rashford on the left, who is essentially an inside forward rather than a than a wide man. So if if, if we can actually get something out of Chong and, and and drag him up to the kind of level where he can really contribute in in the Premier League. Um, on a regular basis, he, he, like Igalo, really, he gives us something completely different to the alternative that we have in that position. Mm, absolutely, yeah. And speaking of uh, players that gives us something, I mean, I'm all on the segues today, Rich. It's you marvelous. Uh, Mason ever. Greenwood with another. I mean, it, it's becoming routine for him now, isn't it? Mason Greenwood doing Mason Greenwood things. Another great goal, another great finish. And what's that? Eleven for the season now? Is it twelve? I think is it twelve. Oh. 12? 12, 12 sounds about right to me. Either way, it's more than 10. Assists, I think. Yeah, yeah 12 and 2 assists, I think. It's remarkable seeing him slot in to top-level football, or at least Europa League football, Premier League football, Cup football, and just look so lethal and so confident and sure of his abilities. You know, what an, another excellent finish. You know, smacked off both posts, was it? Yeah, and if you look at the if you look at it when he's about to release a shot, one of the things we've seen from him in the goals he scored for the first team is that his his finishing, even when he's really hitting the ball hard, is so precise. Um mm. he scored quite a few goals this season where the ball has literally been threaded through the eye of, the, of a needle to, to score the goal. And if you look at there he, he really probably had he had a ball's width of of goal to aim at inside the between the keeper's body and the and the post and he he essentially hit it absolutely perfectly and one it is it's really no, noticeable just how true his striking of a football is and how little kind of backlift he gets with his shots and and how just how smooth they are a lot of comparisons have been made to Ruud van Nistelrooy and you can see why because van Nistelrooy was another whose his finishing was extremely accurate but he also just seemed to hit the ball in the most pure way that you could hit a football and it was I, I, I love a goal that goes in off the crossbar but goals going off the poster almost as almost as good so to to wallop it off both posts and in was was a really really nice goal to watch you know what i i, I knew you were gonna say that i still don't understand why people get such pleasure out of goals going in off any part of the woodwork because it gives that one That's element great. of fear that it might not actually have crossed the line and you have to delay your celebration. Or has that gone in? Oh, has it crossed? Oh, yeah, yeah, it's gone in. Way. As yeah. soon as you see that net bulge, that to me is a vindication. That is a moment of elation that you're allowed. As soon as it hits the woodwork and if it goes off against the post once or twice, you're thinking, has that even crossed the line yet? Nah. 
It's all about Paul Scholes at Villa or or, oh, okay. or yeah. similar. Tony Yeboah, if if that's not before your time. Oh, it's not before uh, my time, no, but it's Leeds, yeah. so it yeah. Like, yeah. That, uh-huh. that, you know, the, the shot the shot that just hits the underside of the crossbar, bounces down at incredible speed and into the top of the net is is the peak the peak shot, the peak goal. Fine, I will I will respect your beliefs at this difficult Fair. time. Uh, yeah, speaking of respecting sense. beliefs, <laughs> I mean that—that's not even a good segue. Andreas that, that Pereira, was segue. that was terrible. Yeah, uh, Andreas Pereira with number five—a a speculative strike, I think—is mm. this can be best described for number five. And the keepers just allowed that to squirm past him or squirm through him. To uh, to be more frank, bless him. You know, he enjoyed it. I mean, I'm trying not to sound too condescending. I think I've failed at that already, to be quite frank. But mm. you know, at, at that stage, four nil up with four away goals. You know, the tie was essentially done at 2 or 3 nil, you know, those two goals were essentially salt in the wound. I mean, the benefit was, you know, the great part was seeing United be so ruthless, you know, even in interesting circumstances, unprecedented setting in the sense that there were no people watching this football match. You know, to get five goals in years subsequent that we've actually struggled to get more than two or three, you know, it, 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 it's an auspicious occasion. You know, it, it was good to see us be that ruthless and be that excellent in front of goal, you know, it, it's a useful strike. I mean, you could say that, you know, the, the, the tie was essentially already done by the time Andreas Pereira scored that fifth, or you could potentially argue that the tie was done when, you know, the, <laughs> all football got cancelled prior. But still, you know, a useful way of finishing off an evening's work. Yeah, it was. I think if there's one takeaway from that game, it shows you the, the power of a crowd. It shows you the power of the, the, the a full stadium. And I think in, in games like that, where there's, there is an obvious technical quality gap, the stadium often provide provides um, a, 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 an amount of balance, a level of balance, and without that, you just basically get two sets of players going up against each other, and and technical quality shows. And I think that's really really what happened. And you could see that, that in the in the game that Lask tired a lot. Um, United had su- such a lot of the ball, and they they just really tired bodies and tired minds and it must have been incredibly deflating for them to what they were billing as probably the biggest game in their history essentially having to play it in an empty stadium and i think once the kind of second and third goals went in their their heads really dropped and and that's what allowed united to finish them off but from the place that united were in 3 or 4 months ago in terms of struggling just to create chances and let alone score freely to the point where we won 5 nil for the, a third month in a row, I believe, um, which is apparently the first time United have done that since since the arc. Um, or well, since Fergie, <laughs> since Fergie anyway. <clears throat> since Fergie anyway. So it was it, it was nice to see United continue to score and actually be ruthless and put put a wounded animal down mm, in, a, no. in, in a humane way. I mean, I did feel sorry for Lask. I mean, you know, auspicious times, etc. But it was, you know... It was mentioned that this was their moment. This was their match. This was uh, a great draw for them. And to lose, what was it, close to a million euros due to the lack of spectators. You know, Basically, the stand is completely empty. You know, The only atmosphere coming from one United season ticket holder who managed to squeeze his way into the press box. And to see it happen... To see it go down like that, you know, it, it's difficult to feel nothing for them. You know, and I, I guess, you know, that, that speaks more to what's actually going on with football at the moment and the many different narratives and possibilities this is, you know, currently, this situation is currently presenting us. Because obviously now with both European competitions and all leagues pretty much across the European continent, save for a few, all the major leagues anyway, now suspended until April at the very least, although... 
you know, it, it's ridiculous that we're having to say April at the very least because everyone is privately saying and quoting yeah. in various news reports, yeah, there's no way we're going to be playing football again in three weeks' time. No. If, I mean, it's, it's a stopgap, isn't it? And I guess now that sort of leads us into possibilities for what happens next. And obviously with no roadmap or timeline as for how long COVID-19 is going to affect the continent and the world at large and how much travel will have to be on lockdown, how much there'll have to be a ban on public gatherings, you know, how viable it is to complete continental, uh, let alone national competitions in football at the minute. Everything feels incredibly up in the air. Who knows if we'll ever get back to normal with it? And yeah, I, I think what we can do, you know, obviously is a, a caveat of noting that we're speculating. I think we can kind of look at the potential options, say if you know if we're back in operation in this country in say september time you know because there's been a lot of uh proposals put forward over the last couple of weeks and especially since thursday friday morning when uh, the premier league was noted to be suspended so yeah i mean obviously rich there's a there's an element of any team putting forward a proposal like karen brady did with west ham saying this season's just been and void which had absolutely nothing to do for the fact that, that west ham mm. were in a relegation battle <laughs> mm. I mean, every option is interesting, isn't it? But everything that's being put forward is going to upset someone, isn't it? It's very, very difficult because, you know, you can you can completely understand um, Liverpool and Liverpool fans wanting to be awarded the title. But if you give Liverpool the title, then you, you're in a position where you, you really have to uphold the whole table or none of the table. Mm, exactly, um, yeah. So do you relegate so the teams you... that are in the bottom three? Aston Villa have got a game in hand, and if they won that, they wouldn't be in there anymore. Do you stick with the top the five? Is this, yeah? I mean... Yeah, this is the problem, because if, you know, you can't... How can you relegate a team when they've played less games? How can you relegate anybody when they've played different games to mm. other people? Yeah. How can you decide who's in Europe when you've got Sheffield United having played less games? You know, it seems like the easiest... And it's not. This isn't the outcome that benefits United, but it seems like the most sensible outcome to me is to avoid the season. As much as that is a real shame for everybody, you know, United are in, it's currently sitting in fifth, and assuming that City's ban were upheld, that puts United in the Champions League. Whereas if we just avoid it, we'll, we'll be back in the Europa League again. But how do you square the circle with relegation and and even looking at the Championship? Whilst West Brom and Leeds are at the top of the Championship, they're not. They haven't run away with it. How do you make the call to promote them and not? And not not other teams, and not have playoffs, and I mean it is an it is an administrative nightmare. The only shame for me was that the, I think we carried on too long because of money, and I think that's that's possibly a reason why we're not reacting generally in this country as quickly as other countries have as well. It just it just feels like there's there's more money at play in the Premier League, and so the Premier League were less willing to take decisions that would cost them and their members money. And I, yeah, I understand yeah. that they have. I understand that they have those pressures, um, but ultimately it's about pe- pe- keeping people alive. And I think I think you're absolutely right that April's just absolutely laughable. And bearing in mind that almost all of the teams aren't play aren't training anymore, although United apparently are. But most of the teams aren't training. A number of them are in self isolation. Every time any member of that squad, if they were training, got coronavirus, they'd have to isolate again. So that's two more weeks at home without proper training i think you'd need some sort of pre-season period again because footballers just wouldn't be match fit which you know you, you really need a few weeks for for them to get up to speed again physically you've got 10 rounds of games which in reality is probably a couple of months worth of football you've potentially got 
the European competitions, the FA Cup. The, I, I, I find it hard to believe you could possibly finish a season this year, this this calendar year. Well, I mean, the, the option I was thinking, I mean, we're all assuming that Euro 2020 is going to be postponed into next year. And, you know, it, it, yeah. My thought would be, I mean, you know, obviously feel free to put this apart. Say if we are back up and running by September or October, obviously that's somewhat fanciful, but you, you said there we've got two months more of football to actually complete this season. From the logistical perspective and the fact of trying to keep everyone happy, I would assume that most clubs would prefer to try and finish off this season as is. Obviously, the teams that are currently outside of the bottom three would rather declare the season none and void, as is noted with West Ham, because it's obviously a lot easier for them than having to play 10 more games and they might get come down to the championship. But if, if there's a way of finishing off this league season and the Champions League and the Europa League in the calendar year and then doing a truncated 2020-2021 season in the first half of next year, that is probably the easiest way of figuring it out. Because as you mentioned there, no situation that is decided whether it becomes to voiding the league table or taking the league table as is at the moment is ideal. You know, there is there are going to be clubs that are exceptionally hard done by in this circumstance. Even if they're Liverpool or not, you know, we've got to be truthful about that. And I do wonder if a truncated league season that basically halves the you know the length of the Premier League campaign and then perhaps you take out the group stages of the Europa League and the Champions League and you basically got what 64 teams in the Europa League and then what 32 in the Champions League and you just play knockout ties so you take out the mm. group stages I mean the thing is clubs are going to be losing millions of pounds anyway and obviously that brings into and that's a whole other kettle of fish you know how many clubs are going to be at risk because they just don't have any money coming in now you know there's there's no broadcast money coming in and there's there's no gate receipts to take into the equation there's no barely any merchandise there's no hospitality at the games clubs are going to be losing an incredible amount of money so you would have thought that any situation that allows them to at least call something back would be useful you know and mm. yeah i mean that's just a thought you know i i would personally like to see this league season completed because the idea and the thought of trying to sort out and litigate all the problems and every team would have their own interests to try and get what they want out of this Premier League campaign, whether that's survival, European place, or in Liverpool's case, the championship itself, it, it's just mind-boggling. It's too much to it process. It is, but, the, but, the, but the, the kicker for that is that, as has been pointed out, there are quite a lot of players that will be out of contract in June, mm. and they are out of contract in June. You've got a transfer window in the summer. What do you do about the transfer window? The reality is you wouldn't be completing the season with the same players that you started the season. How does that impact on the integrity of the competition? If you're one of the teams right down the bottom and you're thinking about how am I going to, what we're going to do in terms of recruitment before we start playing again, you don't know what to do because you don't know whether you're, you, you can't recruit long-term signings on the basis that you'll be in a particular division because you haven't got a clue what division you'll be in in whatever, three, four, five months' time from, from when you start again. The practicalities of it are absolutely gigantic if you if you decide to continue the season. I, it, it, it's, it's kind of mind-boggling. Is, is a summer transfer window even going to happen? Because quite apart from the fact that players can't really travel to sign for clubs, who knows what they'll be signing them for and on what basis and what competitions will be in next year and, and everything else, which is why it almost makes more sense to just make a decision now, whatever the decision is, so at least clubs have got certainty as to how they proceed from now yeah yeah i mean i guess in that sense voiding the season makes you know is the easiest option isn't it so you basically start from 
day one of this current season and act like it's a, a whole new year, as it were. What's interesting, I've, I've read it from a couple of journalists, and I, I, I don't know how accurate it is, but this the suggestion is that for any decision on how we proceed has to be agreed by at least 14 of the clubs. And it's been pointed out, more of the clubs have something to gain from voiding the season, really, than saying it finishes as it is. I mean, obviously, I think I think that if, if at all possible, finishing the season will, would be the preference. But I, I just don't know how, how on earth that's going to be possible. So if you go from there, there's an awful lot more clubs that would be, feel safer with the season being void and having certainty of where they're going to be next season than who want it to be upheld or, or completed. It doesn't feel very important at the moment, but no, it doesn't. It, You're it right. It's going to be really, really interesting as to how they ultimately solve it. But I can't see that happening. We're getting any resolution on that for for a few months. No, I mean, if if we say the season kickstarts again in September, a, a brand new league season that essentially is replacing the 2019-2020 campaign. And then we see how we go from there. At that point, you'd expect uh, Paul Pogba and Marcus Rashford to be fit. You know, if Pogba is as reputedly as uh, reported in the Athletic, potentially uh, interested in signing a new deal. I mean, given the uncertainty around the place at the minute, I can't imagine that he's desperate to leave. <laughs> or I, 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 I imagine choice. it's may- well, maybe yeah, he might not have a choice about going anywhere. So I think that changes the equation completely. But yeah, I mean. I think hypothetically, and obviously this is playing with so much fire, but if we had to start this current season again from day dot, I would feel more confident about what United could do with it and how far we could push ourselves at the table given the players that we currently have at our disposal. I think there is an interesting team building over these last couple of months and it makes me excited for the future regardless of what competitions or what state we're going to be in should football ever begin again. I mean, speaking of football beginning again, obviously this sort of uh, puts a stop to covering United on a weekly basis as we've done for the last five years, Rich. So uh, should we talk a little bit about what we're going to be doing next? Yes. Excellent. So uh, this is something that you and I and uh, Paul and our other friends have discussed for some time. You know, I think United have got such a rich and vibrant history and so many classic games that you can look back to in periods in their history that are just right for ripping apart and really analysing. And yeah, we are going to be looking back at classic games and periods and seasons and uh, players in United's history and analysing them. So our first focus is going to be the 1988-99 treble season. It's going to be a three-part series looking at each of the individual competitions that United won that year. So we'll kick things off with the Premier League, shifting over to that famous FA Cup run, culminating in the glorious 1999 Champions League run. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. There's a hell of a lot to pull out of that year. And, you know, 21 years since winning the treble, it seems like a perfect opportunity to go back and look over what remains United's best season, arguably the best season, by an English club since. And indeed, ever. I can't think of much else that we can drag out of that last game. And obviously, with uh, no new football on the horizon, I guess we'll just start looking forward to these pods. I'm, I'm really excited, to be honest, mate. I'm not going to lie. No, I mean, it's, it's something we've been talking about for a while, isn't it? Over yeah. a long period of time, but we've just not had the opportunity or the wheel or whatever to... <laughs> so so all, the world has intervened, hasn't it, to allow us to um, explore our, our own footballing peccadilloes. So, yes. So, yes. So we shall... Certainly, yeah. And with uh, a quick personal note to anyone listening at the moment, obviously we appreciate there's a lot of uncertainty and fear and high emotion uh, in life at the moment. So you can expect us to continue to remotely record these podcasts over the interwebs and for me to edit them to give you guys something to focus on over the next couple of months. We are more than happy to provide this service for you. 
But during that period, if you would like to support us and our endeavours, then by all means, feel very free to do so. You can head over to redvoices.net slash donate and send any money you wish our way. Any small amount would help with our running costs. Uh, you can do that via PayPal. That would be much appreciated. Rich, uh, yeah, maybe we'll chat later on today. I'm really excited. Looking yeah. forward to it. Yeah, me too. Let's do it. Guys, thank you very much for listening. Don't forget, you can always find us all over the internet, so you, should you so wish, you can find Rich on Twitter, Rich Red Voices, me at at Ewan Lennart, and the pod at Red Voices MUFC, our blog at redvoices.net, and the podcast can be found on SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, and the Apple Podcast app. Just search for Red Voices, and you're sure to find us. We'll speak to you soon. Bye. Bye.